Well, this is our fourth week, our fourth week in a series on Ecclesiastes that we've called The Search for Meaning. And Ecclesiastes is a book written by a guy named Solomon, who was the king of Israel, the son of David. And he takes on the persona of a teacher. It's the Hebrew word kohelet, which essentially means teacher, preacher, one who presents in front of people. And so I would say that really Solomon takes on this persona of a researcher who is presenting to a group of people his findings about the search for the meaning of life. And really, he becomes what we might call an existential philosopher. He's asking questions like, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of all of this? Why am I here? He's asking some of those big picture questions and then writing about it, and that is the book of Ecclesiastes. And we know also that Solomon was a very worldly man. He pursued lots of things. As the richest man in the history of the world, he could pursue lots of different ways of looking for meaning in his life. And he presents all of those things to us. And so the last few weeks, for instance, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he talks about pursuing wisdom or knowledge, studying things, learning about things. And he says eventually that it's all havel. The NIV translates that word as meaningless, but really it means like vanity. It's fleeting. By the time you grab onto it, it's lost its substance. It can't hold the weight of the things that we really long for. And so he says as he pursues wisdom, that actually as you pursue wisdom in an earthly, worldly way, life becomes more despairing. And more difficult. And then in chapter two, he says, Well, okay, I tried wisdom. Now I'm going to try pleasure and comfort. And so he pursues things that are really comfortable and easy for himself. But he says, Even these, those that can be a gift from God and they're meant to be enjoyed, cannot handle the weight as the ultimate meaning of life. And then in uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Ecclesiastes 3, which has this beautiful poetic statement at the beginning about a season for everything. A, se- a time and a season for everything. And we talked about how Solomon isn't saying that life is cyclical and you just have all of these random occurrences that just kind of come and go. He's talking about the providence of God and how God weaves all of these different difficulties and blessings into our lives to draw us near to him. So rather than pursuing life under the sun, as he talks about, he invites us to pursue life through the sun, through the sun, Jesus And then last week, we looked at Ecclesiastes 4, which highlighted that most of the time when we think about existential questions, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of this? We think about them in isolation. We think about our own lives. But Solomon invited us to relationship and community as the only way that we can have a meaningful life. It comes with others. It's never in isolation. And as I was thinking about this idea, I thought one of the ways that I know a lot of people like to pursue relationship and camaraderie with one another is with games. And so I thought about my neighbors, Larry and Bonnie Perrin. They, every time I've gone to their house, they have a puzzle on the dining room table that they're always working on. And then I thought about my friends, Rian and Hannah Razabala. They just started a board game company. Kingdom Games, free plug, SalemKingdomGames.com, okay? You can rent board games from them, and they'd be happy. They even brought one today. I saw that somebody rented from them. 
So they started this company, and I was thinking, like, I don't really like board games that much. And I was, so I was thinking about, why do I not like board games? And I think there's a lot of reasons, but I thought back to one story. One story 16, 15 years ago. Many of you know that Rose and I, when we first got married, we lived in Portland. And eventually I got a job at a church in Beaverton. And my boss, who hired me, invited Rose and I over to their house, Jay and his wife Allison and their two daughters, and we had dinner with them. So we had dinner, and it was a great time, and then they put their kids to bed, and we played a board game. Well, some of you know this about me. I am competitive. I do not like losing. If I'm going to play a board game, the purpose of playing the board game is to win. That's the only purpose that you play a game, right, is to win the game. Otherwise, why are you playing? Okay, that might be an overstatement, but that was kind of my mentality, right? That was my mentality. So I don't like losing, and this board game was a team game. And normally, with wisdom in mind, my wife and I get on opposite teams. But this time, we were on the same team, having to work together, and it was not going very well. The first game, we lost. And so I'm just kind of pushing my wife like, you know, we would have won that game if you would have done this, and we could, if you were doing a little bit better. And I was being like half sarcastic, half serious. And uh, then we played another game and we lost again. And so the whole time I'm just kind of razzing her and railing on her like, oh, if you would have done that, then we could have won the game. And so we lost twice. And I, I was just thinking like, oh, you know, we stink, whatever. And we get in the car. We get in the car after the dinner, after the board games. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, it stinks to lose, but we're fine. And Rose says to me as we're driving away, what's your problem? We hardly even know those people, and you were such a jerk to me. And I'm thinking, I was defensive. I was like, what are you talking about? I was just being sarcastic, like no big deal. And as we're driving home, I just, as I was thinking about her comment to me, I just had this very real uh, lesson that came to mind that I was trying to win the wrong game. I was trying to win the wrong game. The board game that we played was back in the box, and it was put away. And my wife was unsatisfied with her husband, that I had fallen short. I played the wrong game. And I think about that idea, that sometimes we're trying to win the wrong game in life. I think about that as, as we look at Ecclesiastes 5 and what Solomon has to say up to us about wealth and accumulation of earthly things, that sometimes we're trying to win the wrong game. And so if you have your Bible, you could turn to Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to look at verses 8 through 20 of Ecclesiastes 5, which emphasizes all of what I just mentioned there. So he continues, verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Who loves, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, 
whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil they can carry, they, that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And before we go any further, especially for those of you that are newer with us today or haven't been around New Harvest for very long, I I just want to address one thing. I know that there's the perception out in society at large that what the pastor always wants to talk about is money and what the church is after is your money. And so I just want to address this because I have to say probably my least favorite thing to talk about in church is money because I know that that perception is out there, that you think that when I'm talking about this subject, somehow I'm just trying to get in your wallet and get in your bank account. And so what I would like to say is that what we want to do here at New Harvest is faithfully teach God's word. And a lot of times God's word talks about money. And so what we want to do is invite you to surrender your life to God's desires which includes your money and the things that you have acquired. In fact, we don't even take an offering as a church. We have an offering available where you can give online, and there's a hole in the wall, literally, in the lobby. And that is how we collect our money. Why do we do it that way? We do it that way because we don't want you to feel shamed or guilted into giving. We want giving to be worshipful. We want you to be able to put into practice 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which says that you should give what you have decided in your heart, not with compulsion, not reluctantly. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. We want you to hear from God's word, God's instructions about this, and then to be freed up to give as you have decided in your heart that would allow you to cheerfully give back to the Lord. And I think that's exactly what Solomon is inviting us into here in Ecclesiastes 5. And he starts off this whole thing kind of at the very beginning. He talks about how does the world pursue money and possessions and power. And he gives us an example that human nature is kind of our obsession with more, with accumulation, only leads to haves and have-nots. It's kind of like a tiered system of society. 
the people who have something and the people who do not. And at the very top of that system is the king, the most powerful person who can take advantage of everyone else underneath them. This is verses 8 and 9. Well, verse 9 is a really interesting verse because it is difficult to translate. And this is a little bit of Bible nerdery, but I just wanted to put up verses 8 and 9 with two different translations that are very well known, the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version, NASB and IV. And you can see here, the NASB translates verse 9 as a king cultivates the field, the king who cultivates the field is beneficial to the land. Who benefits, who profits? The, the land does, according to the NASB. But the NIV translates it as the increase of the land is taken by all the king himself profits from the fields. Who profits, who gains, who has the advantage? The king. Now, this is, again, part of the difficulty of translating the Hebrew Bible into English for us to be able to understand. And different translations translate verses and phrases differently. And I think that the NIV translation of verse 9 makes the most sense because what Solomon is doing in verses 8 and 9 is talking, us, talking to us about how the world pursues things and how there's this tiered structure of you have the people up top that have all of the advantages and they take advantage of the people underneath. That is just the reality of life, according to Solomon. And so the NIV's translation, where the king is the one who profits, seems to make the most sense because that is what Solomon is trying to emphasize. He's trying to show us that the world is always trying to climb up the ladder of more to get the next job, the next raise, to be able to take advantage of the people underneath. And his point here is not stated, but fit within all of the Bible's teaching on this. We know that we, as followers of Jesus, are called to be different. Are called to be different. Why? Well, in part, based on what Solomon teaches us, because this way of pursuing life is empty. It's empty. And he seems to be showing us that he's answering this question of why is accumulation empty? Why is it empty? And then verses 10 through 17, he just explains this in a variety of ways. The first thing he says is our deepest longings remain unsatisfied. Why is accumulation empty? Because even with it, our deepest longings remain unsatisfied. And this comes from verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It's never enough. Accumulation of more is not the answer because it will not satisfy. It's like a dog chasing its tail or a person who drinks a glass of salt water to quench their thirst. It will never satisfy. That's his, his point here. And when you really think about it, the desire for something more is a desire for something that's off in the distance. That desire itself creates the dissatisfaction. It will never meet the need because by the time you actually get the thing that you long for, the longing will have been replaced for the next thing that's further out. So the desire to grab onto something is so fleeting that you never actually get it because it's replaced by the next thing. And this idea of money not being satisfying is something that we actually studied last fall when we studied 1 Timothy. Last November, we looked at this 
1 Timothy 6, 9. I think it was November 13th. We looked at this verse. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul, who wrote the book of 1 Timothy, this is a letter to Timothy, is emphasizing money as a moral concern. It can plunge you into ruin and destruction. It can cause all sorts of harmful effects in your life. Now, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he is emphasizing some morality with money, but more so he's talking about money psychologically. The harm it does to us for the things that we long for and we desire within us. It creates this kind of unappeased craving that never goes away and is never satisfied. And that's how Solomon seems to be emphasizing it. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to the Grand Ronde Casino, Spirit Mountain Casino up in Grand Ronde. But I I went a few years ago to go to the buffet that they have there for lunch because I was driving through. And it was one of the most depressing sights I've ever seen, walking in and then going right by all the slot machines. And people just lined up machine after machine, just pulling a lever over and over again. And so it actually inspired me to figure out, like, what are the odds of actually winning money on a slot machine? Don't they all know they're just throwing their money away? Well, it depends on the slot machine and the game you play on the slot machine, but you have between 2% and 25% of breaking even or making money every time you pull the lever. And it's all set up. The game is that the casino always wins. Now, you might win in one instance, but eventually... The casino always wins. There's a reason why they have a lot of money, right? Because people are just pouring their money into slot machines. It was such a depressing scene because no one's talking to each other. Everybody's just staring at the screen in front of them, putting in their money and pulling a lever over and over and over again. And I remember being at this dinner or this lunch meal at the buffet and our waiter came over to us at the end of our meal And he said, hey, by the way, really great news. Somebody on the slot machine just won $5,000. And I I turned to the person that I was eating with. I was like, that was weird, right? Like, yeah, that was, it was like their way of reinforcing that you could be here and you could make money. They're trying to feed into this desire that you can accumulate more here at Spirit Mountain Casino. It's empty. It's all fleeting. And you'll probably lose money in the process. But what they're doing is they're fueling this inward desire for fulfillment through money, through money. And what Solomon is saying is that it's all empty. It breeds an addiction. And what he says in Ecclesiastes 3 is that God has put eternity on our hearts. So we have this longing for more, but we misplace it and put it in the wrong place. And so we're never fulfilled. We need a greater nourishment than wealth and accumulation, and money to really be satisfied. That's his first point. We're never satisfied. And then he builds on that, and he says, why is accumulation empty? Because anxiety is created within us. And he says this in verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. And he talks about this in verses 11, 12, and also 17, the end of this section, where he says, what is the the person who pursues money and material gain? They end up with 
great frustration, affliction, and anger. That's how he ends that section, verse 17. And I was reading a study that was done on people who have external materialistic goals. And the the results of this study, uh, this was written about in 1999, so I have to imagine it's even worse today. But people who pursue external materialistic goals like money and fame and beauty, they are more depressed than others and report more behavioral problems and physical discomfort. So not only is God's word saying that pursuing life in this way leads to anxiety, our society is saying the same thing. This is what happens when you pursue life and make that the goal. J.C. Ryle says this really well on the same idea. He says, truly, money is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. There is trouble in getting it. There is anxiety in keeping it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. And there is perplexity in the disposing of it. One of the things that kids will often say to adults is, I wish I had that kind of money to be able to buy this, that, and the other. My kids do this to me all the time. I want to grow up so that I can have X, Y, and Z and have the money to be able to to do all these things. And what do we always say to kids? You don't know how good you have it. It's so much easier for you, right? And what we're expressing when we're saying it in that way is that there is an anxiety that comes with adulthood and bills and money. There's an anxiety to just having to live life and deal with these things that children don't have to deal with. We would all agree with that because we tell kids that all the time. And that's what Solomon is saying, accumulating more creates an anxiety in us. Some of that is just a natural outcome of now we have extra responsibilities. And as you accumulate more, the responsibilities grow with that as well. And then his last point, why is accumulation empty? Because you can't take it with you. And I think this is probably the most important point he makes. Verse 15, he says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. When I first read verse 15, the the mental image that came to my mind, weirdly enough, was King Tut. King Tut and the ancient Egyptian practices of burial. And why did that come to mind? Because King Tut is buried in lavish riches that are in the ground. Well, in a pyramid, but you get my point, right? And this was how they buried people. They would bury people with all of their gold, their wives, their children, their servants, all buried right around the king. And the idea that they did, why they did that is because they thought you can take it with you. And what Solomon is saying is that it is absolutely not true, that you cannot take it with you, that your gold and your chariots eventually just turn to dust. And so here is Solomon the richest man in the history of the world, far richer than any of these Egyptian pharaohs, who's accumulated more than anyone else, and he says it's all vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all pointless, it's all empty. The richest man in the history of the world has something to teach us about our desire for more. So like the board game where you try and conquer and win, like my example earlier, it all goes back in the box. You can't 
take it with you. It has no eternal value. It eventually turns to dust. John Ortberg, and he wrote a book called It All Goes Back in the Box. He says this in that book. The biggest lesson life has to teach is the absolute necessity of arranging our life around what matters in light of our mortality and eternity. That's the biggest lesson life has to teach, arranging your life around the things that actually last forever. And Solomon is inviting us into to take a glimpse of an understanding of around money that has worth and allows us to experience the blessing of what God brings into our lives, that money doesn't have to be all bad. He ends, thankfully, very positively. And so I titled the message, More is Less, because he says accumulation is empty. But I would end this way, more is less unless, and this is how he emphasizes it in a positive way, more is less unless you remember it's all a gift. Everything that you have, it's all a gift. And this comes from verse 19. He says, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. This is a gift of God. I was reading one book on Ecclesiastes which summarized the whole book of Ecclesiastes with this statement. Life in God's world is gift not gain. Gift, not gain. I think that's actually a perfect way to summarize Ecclesiastes 5. Life under the sun has full of emptiness and vanity. It's futility. But life in God's kingdom, life in God's world is gift, not gain. It's gift, not gain. Remember the, the verse we talked about last week, Ecclesiastes 4, 6 which says, one, better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil. It's creating us, it's giving us a glimpse of how do we approach life as a gift? Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. How do we embrace life as a gift? By having open hands before the Lord to receive what he has to give, the gifts that he desires to give you and to allow you to hold on to them with open hands. So often when we get things, we hoard them. They're ours. And don't tell anybody how to deal with their money or their stuff, which is why people get frustrated when pastors talk about money, right? Or when God's word talks about money. We get frustrated because we hold on so tightly. One of the ways that God's word encourages people to live open-handedly with the things that God has that he gives to us is an Old Testament principle called the tithe. It was God's way of inviting people to give back to him a portion of what he had given them because it was all his. It was not theirs. This was a way to give back to him. And the word tithe just basically means a tenth. And so what God was inviting them into, you can read this in Leviticus 27, was inviting them in to give back a portion of what God had given them as a way to loosen the grip of accumulation and money that could have on a person's life. We think of the principle of, the, of a tithe as God being demanding of our stuff, 
But when we change our perspective to remember it's his stuff that he's given us, that then we can embrace giving back just a portion of it. Now, a tenth to some of you probably seems like a lot of money. And I was studying it this week, and I was reading one Bible scholar that said he thought that most Israelites gave somewhere around 23% of their income, that a tenth was just the very beginning, and that there was all sorts of annual offerings that they took for various people in their community. And so that most Israelites were giving 23% of their income away to the Lord and the work of supporting those in their community. And the idea, again, is to be able to loosen the grip that money can have on us. And so that's the first idea. It's all a gift. More is less unless it's all a gift and you receive it in that way. And then the second thing that he emphasizes is you listen and obey the Lord. And I actually take this from Ecclesiastes 5.1. It's not in the passage that we read earlier, but it's the first verse of this chapter. And to me, it's very striking. It says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Solomon is inviting us into this submission to God and God's instructions for our lives. And what he says there is he says, go near to listen. And it's interesting, in the original language, that word listen is shema. And it's the same word that we translate to obey. Because in the Hebrew language, to listen and obey is the same thing. We, in the English language, we think we hear something and then maybe we obey. That's pretty much how it works with my kids. Sometimes they listen, few times they obey. It's often the same with us and the Lord. We might hear something from the Lord. Whether we choose to actually obey could be a fleeting thing. And so I've been in church long enough now in my life to know that most Christians, including myself for many years, do not want to obey God's teaching when it comes to money. We want to think of it. This is my stuff, and we hold on to it with two hands tightly. And Solomon puts this right at the beginning of the chapter, I think on purpose. It's almost like he knows that what he's about to share around wealth and accumulation is going to be a difficult word for people to embrace. And he reminds them, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Go to listen. Go to listen and obey, to seek him and to allow him to shape us. I was reading a study by Barna that said anywhere from 15 to 20% of Americans who consider themselves Christians who go to church tithe, 15 to 20%. And that the average church-going American gives 2.5% of their income away. That might seem high to you. That might seem low to you. But it's far less than 10%. Even if you feel like God's, God's word doesn't command us to tithe, to say that the average church-going American gives 2.5% of their income is to say that they're living life with two hands closed and trying to hold on to the things that come their way rather than living open-handed. Now, you might say, I'm really generous with my money. And then I think there's another way to think about this. What does it mean to listen and obey? I think a lot of us, 
We rely on our income to provide us stability in life. And maybe the thing that we need to repent of most is that we rely more on our income for stability in life rather than have faith and a trust in God to provide for us. Our stability is in our own jobs and the income that comes from it rather than in the Lord to provide. And there's a great thing that a lot of you just get your money deposited, direct deposit, and a lot of your bills are automated and you never have to think of it. And I think there's probably a blessing in that, that we're not overly consumed with the things that go in and out of our bank account. But there can be a negative in that and that we don't trust the Lord to continue to provide. We trust in the income that's coming our way. And so our satisfaction often comes through the stability that money can provide us rather than a faith in God to continue to provide for us. There's been an ongoing story that I've been following over the last 10 days. On Wednesday morning, February 8th, at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. They had a chapel service and they'd been going through a series called Love in Action. And the guy who spoke, spoke for about 25 minutes and he ended by encouraging students to repent that they could experience the love of God in them and then extend that love of God to others. And so he was inviting them to repent of the ways that they were pushing God away in living in some ways with two hands closed instead of ready to receive from the Lord. And the chapel service ended like it always does. Most of the students left. They went off to lunch. But a few students stayed, about 25 of them, who just stayed. Some of the music that was playing continued. And the students just sat there in the front of the chapel, repenting of the ways that they had not allowed God's love to enter in their life fully. And a few students got word of this and came back and joined the students who were already there. And then a few more, and then a few more. And hours had gone by now, and they were still in there. And now, 10, 11 days later, they're still in there, still meeting. I mean, they've gotten a few hours of sleep, thankfully. It's not all the same group. It's a campus of 1,700 students. But they're still in there, allowing the love of God to invade their lives. And so there's a couple pictures that I have of inside the chapel that they have met in continuously now, 24-7, for 10, 11 days. And this has been all over the news. I know many of you have heard about much of this story at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And I think it is worth celebrating. Here you have a generation of college students that statistics would say are higher than any other population group in our country on anxiety, on depression. They are struggling. They just went through COVID and very formative years of their lives. And here you have a group of college students gathered at this small university experiencing the peace of God, the peace of his presence that is invading them in a powerful way. And so people have described this as a revival. And I think that's an okay word to use. There's probably some negative connotations that you might have with that word. But really, a a revival is just about having a hunger for the Lord that leads into repentance, that leads into unceasing praise, that bursts the unity within the body of Christ that those students have been experiencing. And then it extends out as well. 
and people come to faith and that it likely even moves to other places. And we've seen this happening as well. What started at Asbury University has extended to other colleges nearby like Cedarville and Samford and Lee. Others, other students that have gotten a hold of the glimpse of what has taken place at Asbury and are entering in and are allowing God to move in their midst. And they've been meeting unceasingly seeking the Lord. And so I think a revival is a great thing to call it. And would this be that we could look back in a few years and say this was like the early 1970s in the Jesus movement where God moved among a people in a way unlike before, in a way that doesn't make any human understanding and only could be a thing of God. That would be an amazing thing. And I would love to see it among college students and beyond. But this week, I've had so many conversations, people reaching out to me, me talking with other pastors, and the statement or the question is always this, oh, I want to see a revival in Salem. Do you want to see a revival in Salem? And I hope your answer is yes. Otherwise, what are we doing here? We're wasting our time. If we don't want to see a a move of God in our hearts and in the hearts of our community, what are we doing here? That That is the goal, right? To see God move in our midst. But the answer is not as simple as just a simple yes or no. Because revival always begins with repentance. It always, everybody loves revival. Not very many people love repentance. Because repentance is saying, I've been going this way, but now in light of what God has done in my heart, I'm going to go this way instead. It's a, it's a 180 change of direction in light of God's word and his instruction to us. And so whether you need to repent of money and your grip and hold that it has on you or something else in your life, if you want to see a revival take place in this church, in our community, or in this country, it begins by asking the Lord to move in you. Before anything else, before you ask God to move in mighty ways, you have to ask God to move in you. And if you're not willing to repent and to lay down the things that have become barriers between you and the Lord, then you're not actually willing to see a revival because you're not willing to change yourself. And so my prayer for us today is that our answer would be, yes, Lord, move in me. Move in us, but first in me. Move in us, first in me. And I think of Acts 3.19 which says this very well and outlines it perfectly. Repent then. This is Peter, the day of Pentecost, preaching to the crowds. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Why do we repent? So that times of refreshing can come from the Lord. A satisfying life comes not through the accumulation of stuff, It's not through an expanding paycheck and bank account. It's not through a bigger house or a nicer car. It doesn't come through any of these things. And I think most of us know that. And yet most of us rely on the stability of those things to give life meaning. And what Solomon is inviting us to do is lay those things down. To repent of the ways that we hold on to these things. To give life meaning meaning, and purpose. And he says, repent and turn to God so that his refreshing presence may inv- invade our lives all the more. 
And so whether you feel called to repent before God or just want to surrender yourself more fully to him, I just want to invite you to come to the table, the table that's been prepared for us through the sacrifice of Christ. That table right here in front of you, there's a table in back which represents the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus who allows us to have relationship with this God who cares for and provides for each and every one of us. Whether it's a table of repentance or a table of surrender and submission, I just want to invite you to partake and to surrender to the Lord.